morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I'm your host, Phil Coover. Today, we have Cotter Consulting, the founder and Cotter and one of her uh, primary scientists, Dita Bernstein, on to discuss Cotter Consulting, owner's representation, lead, and green incentives, as well as just Anne's story of founding the company and bringing it to where it is today. But before we get to that, we have something really exciting coming out. Uh, from Ice Miller's side, we have the Road to Recovery Conference, which is going to be on June 9, 2021. And it is free to all to attend. It's a virtual webinar, and there's going to be introductory remarks by our chief managing partner, Steve Humke. There's an, an opening session with uh, predictions for post-pandemic recovery. And then we also have breakout sessions that are sector-specific. We have a healthcare, M&A, and of course, we have a real estate section, which is from 12.45 to 1.30. And you can sign up for as many of these different sections as you'd like or, or not. It's a full day of content, and so don't feel obligated to... Uh, stay for the full day, but just sign up for what's interesting. Um, if you go to www.icemiller.com forward slash road to recovery forward slash, that will link you to the website and you can register from there. So icemiller.com forward slash road to recovery forward slash, all one word, road to recovery. And if you have trouble with it, just email me and I'll philip.coover at icemiller.com and I'll I'll send you the link and you can feel free to register. It's totally free. The real estate section will be myself, uh, Jay Augustine, my partner, who you'll hear often on this podcast as my co-host. We all have Christian Baudouin, who is the JLL's director of research, also a former podcast guest. And Hannah Ehrenberg is also going to be one of our panelists, Senior Director, Anchor Leasing and Big Box Retail at Brookfield Properties. So it's going to be a fantastic day of content. Please sign up and attend. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, a partner in the Chicago office of Ice Miller's Real Estate Group. Today, we have Cotter Consulting on the show, and we have two great guests. We have Ann Cotter, the founder and CEO, and then we have one of their experts, Dita Bernstein, to talk about sustainability, which is great because we're recording this on Earth Day. So it'll be released probably May, early June, but uh, we are recording this on Earth Day, so it'll be great to cover uh, sustainability, which is really an important and um, growing component and characteristic of real estate development. So we'll get into that. But first, I want to welcome Ann Cotter. Ann, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Phil. Uh, great to be here. Ann, could you tell us a little bit about your company, Cotter Consulting? Sure. Cotter Consulting, which I founded in 1990, is a owner's rep project and construction management firm. We're based in Chicago. We have uh, just over 80 staff and uh, we have uh, staff in Chicago area, Central Illinois, and then also in southeastern Wisconsin. And we uh, work in markets, uh, projects in transportation, aviation, uh, buildings, as well as the energy sector, providing project management and construction management services, and then project control services, which is uh, cost schedule information management, data management. 
And so I mean, if you go on the Cotter website, you can click on their list of projects. I mean, they're truly, these are a large scale project. You guys have worked on the Illinois Tollway, O'Hare Airport, Rush Medical, Northwestern University, Kellogg. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Tell people a little bit about just what an owner's rep does and uh, what your role is on these, these really amazing projects. Well, an owner's rep really becomes an extension of the client's staff. And many of our clients that, you know, you just mentioned are capital builders. In other words, they they have a lot of capital projects. So they have, um, often they have their own staff, but have more work than their staff can handle. So they outsource uh, to firms like ours that bring the people and the um, with the expertise and experience in the specific needs of their projects to manage scope, schedule, budget, quality, um, safety, and security, especially in environments like O'Hare or, or you know, um, operating highways and that. So we just have a great group of people who have experience. They're architects, they're engineers, they've um, got cost backgrounds, um, and they bring that expertise. They've also had experience in projects of, of similar type. And we pride ourselves on really becoming an extension of our owner's staff. And we, um, we love building and we love getting the project done. And um, we focus on the outcome. And we also know it takes a project, a whole team uh, to accomplish projects. And we really, um, another one of our hallmarks is being collaborative with the entire project team representing our client, but also, um, you know, working with the architects and engineers, the contractors, subcontractors, uh, and other vendors to accomplish what our clients are seeking to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the way I think about it and, you know, feel free to correct me here or add to it is just, you have uh, big entities, and it could be a governmental entity, it could be a private entity, and they have a desire to build or to develop, but they just that's not their core business, or even if it is, they don't have the staff to handle all the aspects of it. So they need somebody to just say, I want to build you know, this building for our business school. Um, how do we do that? And so they need someone to say, well, we've done similar projects. I know this is kind of rare for you to do this because maybe your core business is educating students uh, or, you know, O'Hare Airport. It's flying, landing and flying out planes. But uh, so they go to you to say, can you do this? Can you help watch out rather than just hire somebody who's watching out for developing? You know, you're saying I need someone to watch out for me to help me get this project done. Yeah. No, and, and that's what we do. And I think we've built relationships of trust with our clients over the years and our reputation uh, because we really do. We are vested in what their interests are and really representing them. And um, it's one of the distinguishing, I think, factors with Cotter also. We take, you know, our mission is to enhance lives by improving environments and um, we really take that to heart, which is why we we really love working for uh, public and institutional clients because they also have very complex stakeholder groups um, in in terms of the who use their projects. So there's a lot more input um, involved than say you know building a condo building or building an office building. Uh, you know, there's a lot more that has to go into the project from the planning through design, through construction, and then through the occupancy of the project. 
of the facility. What was that, that tagline you said that enhanced lives, lives by... by improving environments? And you know, that's yeah, what we like every project we do, every project we do, that that's the end, right? And we're all about what's the what's the goal of the client, you know, and what's the goal for this project. And it's always around scope, schedule, budget, uh, quality, um, and delivering that. And um, yeah, we, we focus on delivering great projects that really make a difference. Yeah. Do you work primarily with uh, public agencies, governments, or do you work with private companies as well? We work with, with some private companies. Um, when it comes to uh, corporate clients and that, I mean, we have a lot of big competitors like JLL and um, uh, CBRE and those kind of firms that really are play big players in corporate real estate markets. So it's difficult for us to compete in big corporate real estate markets. But we do uh, we do do private work where it's a niche client and they may want independence from uh, their real estate broker um, or just you know where, where there's a fit for us and we compete. Um, and we compete against a lot of big firms as well. But when we present our credentials and we have the right people who are right fit for that project, uh, we win those as well. But predominantly, we are in the um, uh, predominantly our clients are public and institutional. I mean, Chicago Public Schools has been a client of ours for over 25 years. Um, they are just continually building schools and renovating schools and, and planning for, for those renovations. So they're, they're serial builders, um, which is why they're really good clients for us. Some of the biggest projects you see are government buildings and government structures and infrastructure. Um, and they need help because they don't have that institutional knowledge inside about how to develop real estate projects. Hey, hey, random curveball question. Um, you know, with the Biden administration has talked a lot as we sit here in late April about enormous investment in infrastructure. Are you anticipating that that will um, provide more projects for governments here in Illinois and, and you know, work for you guys to, to help out on? Or is that a little too, too uh, uncertain yeah. at this point? Well, it is uncertain. Um, you know, in Illinois, uh, several years ago, they passed a capital program for both uh, highways and bridges and um, also uh, vertical work. Um, the uh, Capital Development Board funding university projects and whatnot. Um, we've seen some increase. You know, they raised the gas tax to pay for the the highway and bridges and, and transit kind of projects. Um, there's been a difficulty in because IDOT is so understaffed in actually getting those projects out in the um, out for design and then out for construction bidding. But so we have that. So and actually whenever there's infrastructure funding um, at the federal level, because there, there is on a continuing basis anyway, federally funds, federal funds, this would just be an increase in those federal funds. But what we see is they go to, they'll go to IDOT, they'll go to CDOT, they'll go to Chicago Transit Authority, they might go to Metra. So those are the entities that are our regular clients anyway. But yes, we would look forward to uh, increased volume of work. Um, and that would also benefit us and 
all the other players in, in the industries. But it does, it'll be, um, it's not going to be short term, but it'll be longer term. And so we definitely look out, you know, look favorably upon it. Yeah, that's great. And also, I mean, with like IDOT, I know when you're doing those, when you're expanding roads, you always have to deal with eminent domain and taking little slivers of land. And that process just takes forever because us lawyers just spend forever, you know, <laughs> going through the process. Well, and, and, you know, the other big thing with them is the utilities because uh, roadwork projects usually require the relocation of utilities by ComEd and NICOR or People's Gas and then uh, the um, fiber optic uh, companies and, and that. So uh, we've seen projects delayed for at least a year just because of the utility uh, relocations that are required in coordinating and having uh, the utilities relocate the their uh, work in order to make way for, you know, expanding intersections um, or that kind of thing. Right. Well, Ann, I love your story of how you you started the business and how you've grown it. Can you tell everyone about what it, you know, how you started this a women's own business? And um, yeah, just tell us a little bit of how you got here. Well, um, I always say it came in my DNA. Um, my great grandfather was sold bricks, and my grandfather built homes on the south side of Chicago and into the south suburbs after World War II. Uh, my dad uh, is a civil engineer. Um, he, when I was in grammar school, he was in uh, high school and college. He was a concrete contractor, specialty concrete contractor, and then a real estate developer and builder. So I, uh, I was exposed to it, you know, um, in my youth, and then worked in his office and. Uh, high school. And as soon as I could drive, I got to run stuff out to job sites, supplies, you know, that the guys would need. And um, I also say that the other thing I did was I ran checks to the bank um, when they came in, in the mail. So I learned very early the importance of cash flow <laughs> to a business and, yeah. and particularly contracting. So uh, that always stuck with me. Um, and, uh, anyway, so I, I got hooked on it and uh, went to college and got a degree in civil engineering at Bradley, um, and, uh, worked for my dad for about a year out of college. And then I just wanted to work in a bigger environment. So I, uh, went to, uh, sent out resumes. I ended up going to Shell Associates, which is now Len Lease in Chicago. Um, at the time though, I was working for, it was the late seventies and I was working for Harold Schiff and Dick Halpern who had come to Chicago to build the Sears tower and then stayed. So it was great because I learned construction management, um, a professional, you know, CM at risk, but you know, where the, the contractor was, or the CM was very much in a partnership with the um, clients, the developers. So it was just a really good way to learn professional approach to, to construction management. I loved it. Um, you know, I started being a, they, I was a project manager for building out office interiors, loved it. And um, yeah, built my career from there. And then um, in 1990, um, I had four children and my youngest was two. And I, I knew I couldn't keep up um, the pace of working for a real estate developer because I'd gone on to work for a real estate developer. And um, wanted to, but I love what I did and I, I didn't want to get away from it. So I started, I had learned from 
some friends in the industry about this owner's rep project management. And I thought, well, hey, I could do that. I could take just enough work that I could handle. It was going to be on the commercial real estate side because that was what I knew. Um, would look for businesses relocating their offices um, who didn't have staff with the expertise. And one thing leads to another as an entrepreneur, um, I've learned and you just, um, I went down that direction, but there was a real estate recession on in the late 90s um, or late 1990 and into 91. So I just kept networking and pursuing opportunities. And that's when some of these opportunities like uh, for Chicago public schools for, there's a big school improvement program going on and they needed professional CM experience. And um, we, I did get certified as a woman-owned business and uh, we got opportunities working for um, firms and um, just built it from there. Got an opportunity O'Hare to join uh, an owner's rep team uh, that was just starting there. And my, from the beginning, it was all about get an opportunity, go in, do the work, prove yourself, and then, you know, build from there. And um, that's what we did. Dita joined uh, me in 1993. I had built up enough work. I had been doing it myself, um, but, you know, knew I had enough work to, that I needed help. And Dita's been with me ever since. And um, yeah, we've just built um, just one, one opportunity at a time. And um, I always, uh, there, there's no end in sight. It's, I always call it the stairway to heaven. You're just always going up and you know, as long as you put one step ahead of the other, one foot ahead of the other every day, you just keep working at it. And we created a great environment. That was another thing. Why I really wanted to have a good environment for employees. Um, you know, construction companies are, especially way back then, there wasn't the awareness of treating people well and, and, and that. So um, I really wanted to have a different approach. And uh, yeah, we, we work hard at it. We're not perfect, but uh, we love what we do. And um, we just keep trying to get better all the time. Yeah, I love that story. So did you set out on a course to start your own business? And then you, you say we got a project at Chicago Public Schools, which is, it was you, right? You were yeah, just well, yeah, pitching it, it, like, I can yeah. do this work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's, you can, but you can tell you're a trained, you're, you're a good leader because you're always thinking uh, we, like you're always kind of, thinking about encompassing the team, even when it was, uh, you know, just you as a, a solo entrepreneur. And so, uh, you know, how did you, you know, it's amazing to me that just that you, cause you have 80 staff and they're not just, um, you know, any staff, these are highly skilled professionals, experts in their fields, you know, like, how do you talk about, um, how'd you grow the business and just sort of, was it just no understanding cash flow? You know, I, I have enough now where I can hire some more help and help. How'd you learn how to delegate and sort of, um, you know, expand your ability, your, your ability and your bandwidth uh, to handle more projects? Well, I, you know, I think it starts with trust you know, I, I have, I have seen, um, especially when you start like someone like me, where you're actually doing the work and I love the work. I'm passionate. I always say at my core, I'm still a project manager. Um, and I, I could go be a project manager. I love that, but I guess, um, you know, I guess I'm, I'm blessed in a lot of ways. You know, I had great, uh, my husband was always such a great supporter. Um, I surrounded myself with some informal mentors, 
um, you know, when I struggled with certain things. But I do think in order to grow, you have to trust and you have to trust the people you're, you know, you have to communicate with them. You have to stay in touch with them. You have to stay in touch with the client. I, it wasn't always smooth and, and not everyone was a, was a perfect fit. The first person I hired, which was before Dita, I had a fire because, you know, I, I t- turned over work and it wasn't, you know, I was getting feedback that was, that was not good. The person was not doing it the way I had done it with the same, and not meaning they had to be like me, but they had to have a, you have to have a certain, a lot of sensitivity when you're in an owner's rep role that you don't necessarily have to have when you're in the contractor's role. Um, that's a real fine, um, fine aspect of being a really good owner's rep because you have to see a big picture and be more strategic. Um, so, but you know what, it's a lot of trial and error. It's picking yourself up. It's just, you just have to keep on, um, you know, I, am just not perfect, but, um, and also, you know, when you do have problems, um, even that a client brings to your attention, I always, I did learn early, it's accepting the responsibility and doing something about it that then helps to build further trust with them. Um, you know, as opposed to denying it or, you know, trying to say, oh, no, that's not my problem. That's your problem kind of thing. So, you know, if there is no magic to it other than doing a lot of things, you know, and just keeping at it and just always, you know, also having um, having the everyone's best interest in, in heart. I mean, I never had ulterior motives or anything like that that I think can um, detract and, and diminish the relationship. So, and you're building relationships. Yeah, those are the all most, great. The most important thing I tell young people, don't, especially in our industry, don't ever burn a bridge because you are going to work with people at 20 years from now who you worked with today and hadn't seen in 20 years, and they're going to remember you, right? I mean, you're going to have a reputation. It's yeah. a great industry. That's yeah. why I love this industry. Um, because of the people, but also, yeah, you've, relationships are so important. You think you're in construction. You think you're just building things, designing and building things, but it's all about the relationships. Yeah, I think that that's crucial. I see that all the time now. People that have litigated against 10 years ago now are on the other side of a transaction or something. You're like, oh, well, glad we were professional back then. <laughs> right, well, I think right. I think it's a great time to introduce Dita. Uh, Dita, tell us about your role and you know how it's been working with Anne for almost thirty years now. So it's been it's been great. Um, as Anne mentioned, I have been there since early on. Uh, I came pretty much uh, kind of pretty much right out of architecture school. Um, I was I'm employee number three, which is um, something. <laughs> Um, and we've had just a, a just a run of great work and great projects, um, good clients that are um, have. I work in a lot of public sector work, and so it's very gratifying for me to um, do something good in the city that I live in, do do good work, build a, a new school, or renovate a school. Um, so yeah, all all has been a very positive and uh, wonderful experience. With I guess I want to say that. There's been a lot of opportunity for me to develop as a professional and take on interesting projects that um, maybe a larger firm wouldn't have, um, wouldn't be able to offer to a young person. Um, 
So each thing that you do is a little bit different. Um, I specialize in the strange things. <laughs> so, um, but that works for me. Um, so my background, uh, a little bit about my background, my path has been uh, very nonlinear to get to um, even be in the, this realm of work. Um, I started as a natural science major um, in college, a cross-disciplinary major called the Biological Basis of Behavior. Um, caught the architecture bug in, um, in my undergrad years, went to architecture school, got my MR, and then really kind of figured out that, that cross-disciplinary um, aspect of the way of thinking of things was really what I, um, that was really who I am. So I kind of reached, that translated really quickly, I guess, into the sustainability conversation. Um, when, even before LEAD was a thing, I was in the sustainability realm. I, that was my, my master's project was about a sustainable development project. And um, when I came into the, I guess the professional world, um, the industry wasn't quite ready. Um, fortunately, it caught up. I got my lead AP, um, and uh, Cotter that has found and found great projects that allowed me to follow that passion and also be a project manager. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, you said that you specialize in some of the, the stranger things, but you know, now it, you you it was twenty years ago when you when you first started on it, but now sustainability is a really hot topic in development, and it's becoming you know crucially important in certain things. You know, the city of Chicago will require that you comply with certain sustainability criteria, um, especially if you're going to get any sort of money in terms of financing from the city. Uh, but you know, you are lead. AP certify. You're also a sustainability manager for the Public Building Commission of Chicago, the PBC. You know, can you tell us uh -huh. how did you get to be involved there, and you know, what is the what does the sustainability manager for the PBC do? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I want to back up a little bit. So, as an owners rep, it's our mission to make sure our clients' goals happen. Um, so. What I got to do, what I get to do at the Public Building Commission is to make um, their sustainability goals happen throughout all of the buildings that they develop. Um, it's really a great story. The PBC is um, a public sector developer of sorts. So their mandate is to develop buildings on behalf of city and sister agencies. And they have uh, the uh, ability to develop for the county um, and um, MWRD and other organizations as well. We, PBC's been a longtime client for Cotter, um, and we've served as extension of staff and owner's rep for them for many, many years. Um, in about 2007, they embarked on a very large capital development program, and we were um, very happy to be a, a part of the program management team to help roll out this program. Um, this was happening around the time that the city of Chicago was ramping up um, many, many sustainability initiatives from um, the green permit program to uh, the climate action agenda, um, and then the climate action plan, all geared at um, lowering the environmental footprint of the city of Chicago, which is a massive undertaking. Um, and then uh, carbon reduction and um, 
uh, improving uh, transit and, and um, the um, quality of life for all the people who live here. My goal at the PVC, uh, we approached it, I approached it as a program manager um, because we were developing a program that it was to make every project that the PVC developed um, sustainable. We used LEED as our metric because that was a, a very, um, was already by that time for a common um, thread and it tied in uh, very well with what the city was trying to uh, do. All the, all the kind of hot buttons and pain points that are, um, that were happening for the city, like cost of energy, cost of water, uh, how to deal with stormwater, what happens when um, a neighborhood is intolerably hot because you have so much asphalt and not enough green like, trees. Um, and so we just rolled out, a, a, I guess my job was to make it uh, repeatable and something that could be contracted for, repeatable and enforceable and continuously improving. That's fantastic. You know, it's, it's great to know that there are people out there thinking about those things and making sure developments are considering those aspects. For, um, for those people that don't know, what is LEED certification? Um, LEED certification is a, well, the LEED, I guess, starting with the LEED rating system, it's a consensus-based system to help you assess how green you are. So it's not just me saying, oh, I'm so sustainable because I, you know, use, um, I don't know, low VOC paint. It's a, a kind of a rigorous program that's spread across different categories um, where you can um, have a third party vetting of your actual uh, energy, water, and environmental um, improvement over like what would be a code building. So it's been a good, we love the third party assessment part um, because it keeps you honest and it um, gives you a, like a defensible way to, to support what you intend. It's also served as a really good design tool because um, you can ask your design teams to think about these different criteria as they move, uh, as they start the design process and move into the design process and then we have a, a structure that's in place that you can vet against. So it's a rating system. It's a third-party rating system. There are others, um, but this one is just, I think, the most common. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the one you hear about the most. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us just a little bit about Chicago energy benchmarking? You know, it's kind of my understanding that Chicago is ahead of the curve in terms of benchmarking, and but I don't think a lot of people know what that is. Sure. Um, actually, it's kind of an interesting conversation. Chicago is not like the first city to require benchmarking, but it is one of the early adopters. The goal of energy benchmarking is to um, raise awareness about energy performance and use that as a tool to uh, for building owners to um, find ways to reduce their energy use. Um, this tied into all of the city's uh, citywide climate action goals. Um, and by making it an ordinance, um, something that all buildings need to um, comply with, well, not all buildings, but larger buildings need to comply with, you also have a way to um, kind of guide the ratcheting down of energy, energy use and the improvement 
um, like a goal of unlocking energy efficiency and um, cost savings opportunities. Because if you think about it, energy savings means you're paying less, not just that you're improving your like your carbon footprint or you're like good, being good to the environment, you're also saving money because you're not paying for as much energy. Um, so the ordinance, uh, the Chicago Energy Benchmarking Ordinance was adopted in 2013. Um, and it called on existing municipal, commercial, and residential buildings, uh, uh, 50,000 square feet and larger, to track their energy use and report it annually and verify it every three years. Um, and it started with city buildings and it's stepped up over the years to um, include different size buildings, different types of buildings, um, and kind of move you forward from there. So. LEED is great for new construction, but if you really want to get, if you think about like how much building stock is already existing, mm -hmm. um, things like an energy benchmarking ordinance really help you to um, address energy use in existing buildings. Yeah, I mean, you started, I, I'm starting to see more businesses consider this. Like if you mm -hmm. own a home, you know, you sometimes hear about people, oh, I replaced all my windows, I'm going to save a lot on energy, it's going to keep my bills down. Then you start to think about like, well, are the skyscape are the skyscrapers thinking about this right. sort of things? And you know, so, since the last time we talked, I, I saw some a super interesting provision in a Mexican lease, like a lease for a building in Mexico, where uh, oh, cool. they were they were talking about energy benchmarking in the lease, and the tenant it was a big industrial facility, and the tenant was agreeing to share energy metrics and. It put an onus on the landlord to try to reduce their energy costs, and I was just like, I've mm -hmm. never seen this in America. I don't even, you know, it's kind of, um, I, I just found it fascinating that there was even. Start, I was it was the first time in my career I actually see like a contractual provision in a lease that was discussing energy metrics and how the parties were going to work together. Not even like partly for money reasons, but just partly for it's the environment, like, let's work together on this. And I, I thought that was fascinating. Right. That's really cool. Because you should, not just because it saved you money. Right, right. That's great. Um, was it so, the, uh, was I mean, it I the think least... the answer... Oh, who, who's, uh, did the requirement come, did the requirement come from the uh, leasee or the leasor in that? It was the leasor, yeah, it was in their firm oh, okay. lease. Yeah. Yeah. Were they an American company? No, they were the the Mexican landlord. Interesting, because yeah, yeah, you th yeah, we always think we're a far more developed country. We should be ahead of the game on that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I've I've heard that there is um, I haven't dug into it, but there's like a a handbook that came out of a convention a few years ago with a whole list of contractual provisions where a bunch of lawyers at this convention got together. Put together I mean, it's like several hundred pages of provisions you can insert in contracts to be more eco-conscious and eco-friendly. Um, but, you know, yeah. it's one of those things I haven't, it's like reading a dictionary. Like I haven't dug into it. Like you, you, <laughs> you look some. You'd look something up if it was applicable to your situation, but you wouldn't just uh, spend a Sunday night getting th going through it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if a developer wants to be more 
environmentally friendly and thoughtful and conscious about a project, uh, you know, like how should developers go about that? I think the answer is to hire you to, to help guide them through the process. You know, <laughs> assuming you're too busy or something, you know, like what, I guess, how do developers start in, in thinking about these things and, and getting better at them? Sure. Um, so my pat answer to that is start before you start. Like the earlier you start thinking about things, the better. Think about um, the life cycle of the building as a whole. Um, you know, the city, well, the city has a great, uh, they're in a great position to really push energy efficiency and environmental um, improvements because they're a build and hold investor. Um, like, when the PVC is developing a building, you know that the uh, you know, CPS is going to live in that building for you know 100 years potentially. Um, so there is, even though money is always tight, there is a clear incentive to um, invest upfront for long-term benefit. So I'd say one of the things to think about is not just the quick bottom line, but like how can you invest upfront for um, the long-term good of the environment. And um, even the midterm good of your investment. Um, one thing we talk about also is setting um, energy use intensity goals. So, if you want to speak um, purely about energy efficiency, think about like what other buildings of that type have as their EUI, and then how can you um, maybe improve on that? Think about the quality of the space that you know, who might be the users and the quality of space that you're going to be building um think about like you know everybody loves a nice glass and steel building but like think about the energy cost of your materials um, and how that may also result in um, less than ideal indoor environment um, you may have a great view but like that western exposure even with really good um, glass is always going to give you problems unless you figure out it was like heat problems and glare problems unless you figure out a way to manage it with the design so i would say just think about the building and the and the experience as a system not um and, and what you want to achieve big picture don't think just step by step think big yeah and globally could I add to, to what Dita's point too? And that is, you know, even this is what she's saying too, is the more um, an owner of a building um, can think about these things before they even engage an architect to, to learn, uh, to maybe get some input, to understand the ramifications in terms of cost and whatnot, in general terms of some of these things. They, when you go into the design process, first of all, you'd hire an architect who's in line with, with what your goals are that you want to achieve, who you know can support them. Um, but also it, it's, it's going to be cost you less. It, it, the thing in the development process is that the further into the process you make changes or, or mm -hmm. you make decisions, the more it's going to cost you. And if you can go into, you know, a project understanding what you want instead of hemming and hawing and, and, and being like three quarters of the way through the design process and then changing your mind. I mean, you know, people, our industry gets a bad rap for being over schedule and over budget, but, the, but that usually results because of changes made 
in scope, you know, during design or construction. So just to, you know, for, for anyone who's going to build a building to, to be educated ahead of time and have some understanding of how much they're willing to commit to this, what are, what are their larger goals it's going to benefit them. And um, also, you know, I think one of the great things about DITA is, and, and especially from that experience working on so many projects with the PBC, is that they saw what worked and what didn't. And from a practical standpoint, but also from an economic standpoint, um, because there's a lot of stuff out there. But if you if you engage expertise early on, you'll understand, well, no, don't do that. That's not worth the money but go in this direction because you're going to get more bang for your buck. So there are those kind of bigger decisions. And once again, the earlier they're made and the earlier they're part of the, the program for design um, and then built into the design documents and construction documents, um, the better it's going to be for everyone. I wonder if I could hop on that um, also, um, just a little tiny case study. Um, there were two buildings that uh, PBC developed in tandem, they were based on the same prototype design. One team really committed to an integrative design process. And so they were able to um, produce a building that earned LEED Platinum, which is the highest level of LEED certification. Um, although they only targeted LEED Silver because they really committed to um, thinking outside the box and, and thinking about trade-offs like as a system, not just as an individual go, no-go, but like, if I do this and then I do this other thing, like as a concrete example, they went with ground source heat exchange uh, system to heat and cool the building um, using heat pumps. And because of that, they needed less space in above the ceiling. So they were able to reduce the overall building height and what they saved in like the brick and the, and the other um, materials offset the cost of the uh, geothermal field, and so uh, unfortunately, couldn't prove um, that the this energy efficiency improvement cost extra money. So they were not able to secure a grant for it. So that's the kind of power, like really thinking it through and thinking about how the system works, um, can bring to you. Yeah, and the cost of goods and materials right now is so high and i was talking to someone the other day where the cost of steel they had to delay a project by six months and the cost of steel had gone up by like 50 percent on the project oh just in that delay because everything's so volatile right now and kind of unpredictable um right. that case study was interesting it kind of answers my other question but i'll, I'll still ask it in case you want to add but is, is there a business case for thinking environmentally friendly from the outset I mean, you've, you've touched on cost savings by thinking about energy conservation. Um, but, you know, are there any other bi business cases, whether that's even just from operational standpoint or, or economic incentives from state, local, federal government, anything like that? Um, maybe it's case specific, too. Uh, you know, maybe it depends on what you're doing. Yeah. Uh there are some incentives kind of going backwards. There are some incentives. Um, there's been like a long time ongoing tax credit um, for designing or build like for an owner to build a building that is um, X percent more energy efficient than what code would require for the 
public buildings that usually manifests as something the design team or the the contractor can take because they don't, you know, public buildings don't pay taxes. But for a private developer who is a taxpayer, that is that could be pretty powerful. What I also see is that local governments and it's different across the board have done a good job of saying we'll give you an economic incentive or we'll speed up your permits. Mm -hmm. You can qualify for TIF financing, but you have to satisfy satisfy some sort of environmental standards. Um, So it's not like if you do the environmental standards, you'll qualify. It's like if you want this other incentive, I'm going to make sure that you are taking care of the building. So it's all it's you know some of it's like the carrot or you know whether they dangling yep. a carrot or what they're, how they're going about it, but it it all plays in together. Hey, I was going to ask you. I recently have started seeing well certification, but I I can't tell if it's just Lady Gaga and some celebrities pitching this or if it's like <laughs> a real is it like a real thing? Is you know like. And I'm not asking you to trash it or embrace it, but I just was just genuinely <laughs> curious how you feel about it. Sure. Um, it is a real thing. Um, and it's really, I think, building in popularity because it kind of ties into the idea of placemaking and how to encourage people to be like more healthy and, and more like more healthy in there. I, I'm not an aficionado of wealth. I don't know it as well as um, I probably should. I think it taps into um, a market of trying to make um, like an office environment or a or any other kind of environment which supports the health and well-being of um, the occupants. So where LEED touches on um, the health and well-being of occupants but just about air quality and maybe daylight and views. Uh, well, really focuses on like you have opportunity to take the stairs, or do, are you you know do you have a way to get outside, or can you actually? It's just uh, more focused on the health and well-being of occupants than other rating systems. Than the building itself. Yeah. Yeah, and feel free to cut this if it doesn't <laughs> robust enough. No, I think it's helpful. I mean, I I had never heard of it. So it was like a Super Bowl commercial, and now I've seen it many oh, really? times since then. You know, it just once you notice something, it seems to pop up everywhere. Um, I would say that I've seen a lot of I've seen that in over the past few years. I've seen a lot of um, more conversations about well than lead. Like lead has become. Um, Kind of something that's known, but well is something that you can. In both cases, I think there's things that you can um, pitch to your um, people who are renting your space. They're um, definitely both differentiators, and well, it, like they're both differentiators, and well is going to be more about like the experience of being um, a user of the building. Oh, you that that's the business case right there. Like you just hit the nail on the head. Like it's. If I'm developing a building, it's usually not just for me as a private developer, a governmental entity different. But if I'm developing yeah. a building, it's because I'm I'm renting it out. I'm leasing it and I want to be able to market it against the building across the street. And if I can have need certification, well certification, that's just going to give me a huge leg up on marketing it against buildings that don't. 
I agree. That's a third party uh, benchmarking too. I would agree. Like, um, it makes it like not just me saying it. It's like here are the things that we offer as a potential workspace, workplace. But is yeah. there as well as designation data? Is it is it well defined? Pun intended. Well defined and and like have the checklist like Lead does. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I wonder if, you know, before COVID, the race in office buildings was to have the most amenities. Like, you want Mm -hmm. restaurants, more workout facilities. And I wonder if that will subside in, you know, in post COVID life and you'll have more well lead focused. I wouldn't be surprised if, well, those kind of amenities fulfill well, do they? Oh, yeah, yep. right. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't think they they do. go together. Yeah. Yeah. No, good point. Well, I think the big difference is a lot of the reason for those amenities was also because they were packing so many people. I mean, the, the, the per square foot area per person went way, way down, right? I think post-COVID, There'll actually be a need for more space because they aren't packing more people into small into smaller areas like they were. You know, that was a lot of the drive to those big floor plates and um, to be able to pack people in and long, you know, who were just sitting at a computer um, in long rows and that kind of thing. So they're going to need to space people out more, I think, in the future. Totally agree. And you know, I just really appreciate both you coming on the show. You guys think you're trained to think so far ahead and sort of like, here's your goals. And then you have to think, you know, the next 119 steps out in order to get to the goal and and how to do it the best way. So I really appreciate you both coming on the podcast to talk about Cotter Consulting and also just to have an expert like Dita and and as well, of course, Um, just to give an example of some of your capabilities and how you think about things when you're you're helping owners build their buildings. Well, well thanks. We appreciate being part of it. This is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being on the show. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances.